This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 57 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and it's February 2024, two years after the return of trench warfare to Central Europe in Ukraine, and four months into Israel's horrific ongoing genocide in Gaza. Today's special guest, Crystal Zivan, just got back to her home in Vermont from Washington, D.C., where she spent several days confronting politicians and protesting USA's support of Israel's war crimes, along with other activists from Code Pink and elsewhere. Crystal, it's so great to have you here, and let's get right into it. How was your time in D.C.? Well, it was it was nonstop. Let me say that first of all. I, I came home completely exhausted, found it very difficult to sleep at night from the results of what we were doing during the day. We every day went to Congress. There was first we were in the House of Representatives where they had a bill, a single bill just to aid Israel. So we went to I don't know how many. I mean, we divided up into teams. There were quite a few of us. There were many Palestinians. Um, if anyone saw the Democracy Now!, where there was a doctor, Palestinian doctor, who talked about the hundred members of his family that were killed, well, his wife, who started Doctors Against Genocide, was with us, was one of the people. Um, many Jews, Palestinians. Um, it was a definitely multicultural, multinational mm -hmm. group. And we divided up and went to uh, different representatives' offices. And then one friend of mine and I went to the gallery for the vote, which was extremely interesting because it, the bill did not pass. And it did not pass because of Republicans, number one, because it was a Democratic bill to fund Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and number two, because they wanted border stuff. Yeah. So it didn't pass for the wrong reasons, but it didn't pass. Um, and, uh, but in all of the debate, not one person except Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib mentioned Gaza. Oh, and um, Ocasio-Cortez did. Wow. <clears throat> so it was really, it was as if Gaza didn't exist. It was all Israel defending itself, Hamas committing atrocities. It was, so it was, that was disturbing. Just to make sure I understand. Do you mean in their speeches to Congress or in their conversations with you? No, in their speeches to Congress on the floor. Wow. Wow. So I mean, basically, this is what we've been experiencing, which is that Israel's so-called right to so-called defend itself um, is everything. And God, the existence of human beings in Gaza and the West Bank doesn't matter. Right. And then it was pretty much the same in the Senate. The next day we went to the Senate where they had a $118 billion bill created by Chuck Schumer. Hmm. And I, I'll say no more. Um, yeah, my, my senator, <laughs> I'm, I'm disgusted to say. Yeah. Um, and um, so we went to lots of offices in the Senate. Um, we we focused on people who had called for a ceasefire, but um, you know, made their own statements. The ones who had signed on to Corey Bush's uh, resolution, we we didn't because we assumed they would vote 
against this. Anyway, so my friend and I went up to the gallery again and heard the debates. And again, this bill passed, but it needed a two thirds majority and it didn't quite have that. And again, it was the Republicans who voted it down because uh, the border provisions weren't enough. This was a bill for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. Right. Let's right. start another war in Taiwan and, and the border. And they thought the border stuff was insufficient. So that's the reason it got voted down. Anyway, long story short, it, it went on. There was finally another bill. There's a bill that is going to be probably on Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. It'll be voted on. They pared it down to 95 billion, taking out the border stuff. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it's likely that it will pass. And again, the only person who stood up and said something was Bernie Sanders, who gave a, an impassioned speech. Bernie has an amendment to this bill that um, would take $10.1 billion out because he thinks, you know, the defensive stuff we can fund, like the Iron Dome and all of that, but um, take out the, you know, bombs and weapons yeah. that we're providing. So, you know, you have to congratulate him for that, but it's not enough. And he only has 11 senators signing on with him. So what we did was every time there's a vote, this is a, you know, we went to their offices and mostly talked to staffers. Sometimes a foreign policy person would come out and talk to us. But, you know, we just told our story. We had materials. I had a little flyer from a guy whose family I'm trying to help get out of Gaza because they're, yeah. and there, there is a lot of that now, lots of GoFundMes. I have a GoFundMe for Yosef. He's got, you know, three children under the age of six, two hmm. little boys and a little girl. And, um, you know, the little girl has come close to freezing to death a couple of times. She's the youngest. And, um, you know, the situations, I, I've been in touch with him from the beginning of this. He just, you know, we, we've now been talking on the phone because they've got internet where they are in Rafa, but they're terrified. The The bombs are falling very close to them. And, of course. Um, yeah. Now, um, pod, listeners, this podcast may remember in September, the month before this, you know, disaster and tragedy happened, um, I interviewed my coworker, Mohammed Abunahel, who described in detail his what it took for him to get out of Gaza. When you talk about these GoFundMes, I hope money is enough because what we learned from Mohammed a few episodes ago is it takes a lot more than money. It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to get out of this war zone um, along with money. And well, and and what's happened is, you know, the money gets paid to some transportation company owned by um, Egyptian military and it's gone from 500 a person to 5,000 a person, and now it's 10,000 a person, which is pretty prohibitive to raise $50,000 for five people in my case. And then they get to Egypt and they have a limited amount of time before they have to get a visa to a third country. And right. Right. that's what I've been, in DC, I also was going to embassies where they were sympathetic to Palestine and have called for a ceasefire like Ireland, uh, <clears throat> South Africa and so on. And, you know, they really, um, they, they all, you know, were sympathetic and sent me to websites for 
you know, people fleeing violence, but, um, but so far we have not found a third country. So we're just um, right now trying to keep, <laughs> keep them yeah. alive, which there's little we can do from here because there's no place to go. Right. Um, I, I'd like to jump back to an earlier thing you said um, that when you said this will pass in the Senate, will not pass in the Congress. So I'm happy to say this podcast is not just for so-called Americans, um, but has listeners all over the world. And I think most people don't have to deal with the ridiculousness of our broken government and how our so-called Congress works. I'll stop saying so-called eventually. I say it a lot when discussing this government. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it is important to, to note that what what you said is that a, a bill to to spend a whole lot more money on weapons and send them to kill people um, will pass in the Senate. It's being blocked in Congress. So the fact that it passes in the Senate doesn't mean it will pass. It has to pass both. You're right. It, ha it has to pass the Congress. Um, yeah. This is a bill that's coming out of the Senate. But. Sure. Yeah. There's there's every chance it will pass at this and point. You think uh, so? Now, I've been counting. I mean, you and I are certainly on the same page that it hasn't passed for the wrong reasons. And to put it in my own words, the reason it's the wrong reasons is the the people who wisely are blocking, you know, sending more weapons to kill people in Gaza claim that the reason they want to do it is they want to save those weapons to start a war with China and also blow up Iran um, and also, you know, punish children on the U.S.-Mexico border. So they, they give the absolute worst reason. It's, for me, impossible, absolutely impossible to support the people who are blocking this bill, just as it's impossible to support the people who are supporting the bill. And here in the United States, we are without heroes right now. I feel we are without champions. We are without, I mean, you mentioned Elon Omar, um, Cori Bush, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, all of these, we, we often, many activists find them to be compromised. I think they're the best we got. And I certainly, and I would embrace all four of those people I just mentioned. But even though, number one, they're not they're not making a dent in the military industrial complex's power. And number two, they are compromised in many ways in order to win elections. Um, it's a rough time to it's a rough time to observe U.S. politics. It's it's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah no, it definitely is. Um... I mean, you know, personally, I feel like we, the whole thing has to collapse and lots of suffering to go with that. But um, I don't see fixing I, this system. I agree. I agree that it has to collapse, but I hope not a lot of suffering. Um, I, I have often asked the question, what positive purpose does the federal government or any federal government serve in 2024? I believe that while you know mass governments were needed 200 years ago to do things like you know prevent people from dying in, of, of diseases that are easy to cure and collecting votes, et cetera, we have the technology now to, to not conglomerate an entire continent's worth of diverse people into one corrupt government. And I think we could survive the collapse of. of I do too. I do too. I mean, 
this is a whole podcast episode in itself that maybe I should do sometime and maybe I'd have you as a guest on this one, but I'd love to do a round table on how, how do we envision a post-USA world? I, I don't think it would be worse than this world. No, for sure not. How could anything be worse than this world? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and we've also, uh, you know, and by the way, some of this that we're saying, Crystal, you're feeding me straight lines, you know, for, for things I've dis discussed on my podcast elsewhere. I've mentioned elsewhere that we, you know, those of us who've been around a while observed the fall of the Soviet Union, which was all considered impossible until it suddenly happened. Um, and, and so large, large corrupt empires can fall and people can survive. <laughs> I think they always do. They always eventually yeah. fall. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, our, because this is audio only, our, our our viewers can't see the little smile on your face as you say that. But I'm smiling too because I think we are so afraid. We're so afraid of the future that we've locked ourselves into believing that if the United States were to crash, you know, all kinds of Iranians and and Chinese and and Russians and you know would would come destroy us. And actually, we're destroying ourselves because of that fear. You know, I mean, and people don't stop to consider that we have 800 some military bases all over the world. And what, China has one or three, something like that. Right. And uh, Russia has, I can't remember how many, but, you know, way, way less. So, so you know, yeah. they are looking to save their own economies and their own creating infrastructure, as far as I can see. I mean, Russia, you know, they want some more territory, but is it their right? I don't know. I I listened to most of the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin, mm -hmm. which I found really interesting. Um, I think Tucker Carlson felt like he went on too long with the Russian history. But I think just as with um, Israel and Palestine, if we don't put it into context and look at the historical realities of why this is happening, um, you know, you've got a an uninformed view. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I can. I, it's clear to our listeners, I'm sure, that your your activism has a long history and goes deep. Um, and actually, I want to mention one reason I'm interviewing you today is I became aware of you um, because of a great book you wrote called I'm, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which is a biography of the great singer-songwriter who was once your husband, Warren Zevon. And I want to talk about that a little later, but the first thing I want to mention is in this book, you really don't say much about yourself, which is one of the reasons I called you up, you know, when I found out that you're a Code Pink activist. And of course, at World Beyond War, we're, we're very close with Code Pink, a great organization. We work together all the time. Um, I don't know much about you at all, Crystal. Um, there's not much in the book about your story. Take us back to the beginning. How did you become who you are? Where did your activism begin? Where did your awareness of the world's problems begin? Funny, I was just at, at a having dinner at Busboys and Poets with um, Anne Wright and uh, uh, yeah. Laurie um, Ar Arbiter and uh, a couple of people, um, and we had this conversation. Like everybody went around to and said how they started. So, so it's right in the top of my head. Um, 
my my beginning, I grew up in Aspen, Colorado. My parents were of the working um, class, not the multimillionaires that I was surrounded by. Um, but anyway, this was, you know, in the 50s. And a, a family, Aspen was primarily a, a very white town, a small town, 1,500 people at that time. And um, a Black family moved from Memphis into town. Um, and the mother of this family ended up being the maid for one of my girlfriends, multi-multi-millionaire family. And um, the father was a janitor because that's the work they could get, not because they weren't educated or shouldn't have gotten better work. Anyway, Deborah, I was in sixth grade, Deborah and I became best friends. And a longer story short, uh, one weekend I wanted to invite her over to spend the night. And so I asked my parents who had never, ever said no to me having a friend over to sleep over. And they said, no. Whoa. And I said, I don't understand. Why not? You've made me go to Sunday school and church and all this stuff. And this doesn't make sense. And they said, well, we have a convention of doctors from Georgia staying in the motel. We owned a motel. And um, it just wouldn't look good. We, ha we had an apartment that was off the, you know, the registration desk. And we just don't, don't, we can't afford to lose business. And, you know, I argued that for a period of time. And then I said, okay, well, then I'm going to stay at Deborah's house. And they said no to that too. And their reason being um, that we don't know what people in town might think. Um, and I, you know, I had become friends with this girl. We'd been, she turned me on to some, you know, young people's books, you know, scholastic, whatever it was that you used nice, to order yeah. in school. And, um, and so I had become aware of the civil rights movement, which, you know, Aspen was pretty much immune to any of that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so that led me to find out a lot more. Um, about a year later, when I was 12, I stole money from my, the cash box at the motel, got on a bus because Martin Luther King was going to be doing a speech in Denver. Oh my so God. I was going to go to Denver and join him. Just, you know, I thought, you know, he'd just take me in and I would just go back to the South. <laughs> um, I was 12. You know? <laughs> anyway, wow. so the, the, over Loveland Pass, kind of midway to Denver, the state police pulled the bus over and came on and got me. And that was my first arrest. <laughs> okay. I was taken back to Glenwood Springs. Now, it wasn't much of an arrest because my parent, there was a snowstorm. My parents couldn't get in. So I spent the night in the sheriff's apartment above the jail and his 16 year old son played guitar and I had a great time. His wife fed me a great dinner. Um, <laughs> my parents didn't have such a great time, but anyway, that set me off. Um, and I don't think I've ever looked back. I had a girlfriend whose mother was protesting Rocky Flats um, and you know, she wouldn't let me go with her because my parents would never permit it. But I helped her distribute flyers and things like that. And I and I just became a young rebel. <laughs> wow. Now, um, by the way, Rocky Flats, I'm from, I've heard about those protests. Um, I've been involved with the work of Allen Ginsberg, and I believe he was at those protests. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is 
these were legendary times when there was so much hope. Yeah. Uh, and now your parents play a role in that, you know, I know actually a little about from your parents from reading this book, which again is a wonderful book, um, whether or not you're a fan of this particular music, it's a, it's a book about life. Yeah, I'm curious, did you ever come to find peace with your parents about this? Were you ever to, to, able to talk sense to them? Um, yeah, you know, my parents were both from a small town in Kansas. So they were also very, my father had been in the Air Force in World War II, so they were patriotic, they were Republicans, um, but sort of salt of the earth kind of people. When they moved to Aspen, they really didn't know what hit them because Aspen was such a sophisticated town that revolved around a lot of very wealthy people. Um, um, and my father kind of assimilated and made his way. He was a musician, so he played in some bands and so on. Oh, and. Okay. And um, I mean, not a, he didn't make his living that way, okay. but um, but um, but my mother was still kind of this Kansas born and bred. However, it was really Watergate that um, woke them up. Um, I was home for the summer of the Watergate trials and working in my father's office. He had an insurance agency and I would go down to it was called the pub every lunchtime. And I wouldn't return because they had the television on. They were televising the trials. And, um, you know, and I had arguments with my parents about this really happened, you know. And, mm. and then they had to believe it. And so they, um, they began to also study and learn and listen to me. <laughs> mm. um, and, um, and they ch completely changed uh, they retired to Arizona. My father was part of this little Monday lunch group, um, men's lunch group. I was the, I got to be, go whenever I was in town. But they started, what was that movement that was, uh, you know, where everybody was protesting the bank? So they would go with their signs and stand out in front of wow. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and so on. And that was pretty impressive. These old, you know, geezers. <laughs> Which, That's so great that you, I mean... I, I think I've also helped. I've seen my my parents go through various phases, you know, in, in some ways, believing in the American dream is, has been like the five stages of death um, for all of us, for everyone who's alive. But I don't think my parents have ever carried signs at a protest. So that's yeah. awesome. Did you did you ever have peace with them about the your friend who they didn't? You know, yeah, they that? um you know, my father had sort of a selective memory thing like that didn't happen. And my mother said, yes, it did. <laughs> and then he had to acknowledge it. And, you know, then they both felt like that was the worst mistake they made as parents in my upbringing. I think it's so important when somebody's activism starts so early, because I often ask the question, and this is a question I like to ask us, you know, what, why do some of us feel compelled to devote our lives to fixing a, a sick world, whereas so many other people just don't feel it's their place to fix yeah. a world. You know, what is it that you and I, Crystal, and everybody at World Beyond War and everybody at Code Pink and all of our allies around the world, what do this tiny fraction of us, you know, have in common that the rest don't? And I, th I do think it starts in childhood. I mean, something was different about you back then. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think it's it's also sort of a, 
You know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this as I grow older and as I'm now called on to do some more um, stringent forms of protesting. I'm just discussing with some of those people I just mentioned doing some pretty radical things, which I wouldn't have thought twice about some years ago. I'm now 74 years old and, you know, mm -hmm. you think about some things, you know, what's my capacity, but but when, it, when there's an injustice, I'm not afraid to confront it. And I think, you know, every time there's been something going on with Palestine, when it's become a, you know, a major issue, um, I lose friends. I, you know, I have lots and lots of Jewish friends and I lose friends. Um, it's, I also, it's very painful. It's very painful when there's yeah, a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, people I've known practically my whole life. Um, yeah. You said, you said something very, very, that hits hard there. I've lost several friends. I, I mean, when the war in Ukraine happened, I lost a close friend who I'd known since college. We yeah. simply couldn't communicate anymore. Yeah. Um, and that still feels tragic to me. And yeah. we haven't spoken since. Um, because this person thought I had suddenly become a Putin loving whatever, which is ridiculous. I was trying to prevent World War Three. Right. Um right. an endless war which has no no chance of ending, you know, to anybody's satisfaction. Um it's it's so painful when you lose friends. Um I want, you know, we're kind of all over the place and which is normal, but I I want to mention um, I learned in your book that Warren Zivon was was half Jewish and that his father was from Ukraine. Um, yes. And I also, by the way, my, my a lot of my relatives are also Jewish from Ukraine. Um, that's something I didn't know. I also learned that the name, the reason your name is unique um, is that it was a, you know, his his father sort of just came up with it from his his more more Yiddish Ukrainian name. Um, I'm I'm. Because you emphasized in this book several times that your former husband, Warren Zivon, was sort of, um, what, I'm, I sense that you were not necessarily aligned. Is that right? And I'm curious. Um, yeah. I mean, he was basically just apolitical. Um, he would, you know, uh, like he liked Jimmy Carter, so he voted for Jimmy Carter, for example. Um, I loved him. Yeah. 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 Um, and so he would end, you know, I was kind of managing him for a while. And, you know, one of our closest friends, our daughter's godfather is Jackson Brown. And mm -hmm. Jack was playing concerts for the, the farm workers and, and supporting the great boycott and stuff like that. Anti-nuclear things, Diablo Canyon. And um, so he was playing these big concerts. So I would sign up for Warren to open for him. And, um, you know, Warren would make some of his cynical comments and so on, but but he went along with it. He wasn't, mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he became, he would be impressed with people. Warren would get impressed with people who had some kind of stature and in the government was even more so. He became friends with Steve Cohen, who's uh, now a representative in the house. Yeah. yeah. From Tennessee. Oh, and he's a congressman, right? Yes. A, or, he, he was a state senator at the time okay. Warren met him. Um, 
but he is he is one of the worst one of the worst when when um, i was there it was an early vote on on money to israel and it came just after i'd just been arrested on ukraine <laughs> at bernie's mm -hmm. office um and Steve Cohen was one of the few Democrats who voted was voted on a pro-Israel stand. But it was it was the censure of Rashida Tlaib that was the debate. Oh my God! Don't you can't tell me Steve Cohen voted for that? Oh, did he, he did. Not only did he when the vote when the debate was over, he went over and hung out with his Republican allies. Um, so oh he. But He's let me <laughs> let me draw the picture, which is a, a ghastly picture. Um, this was right after the um, the attack on October seventh, when obviously everybody was feeling, you know, be beyond themselves with with agony over over the suffering on both sides. Um, and Rashida Tlaib, who is great, you know, one of the few outspoken voices for Palestinians, which of which she is one, I believe, in, in Congress, um, simply for, for speaking the way all of us speak um, and for, for being associated with you know, the typical propaganda that's used to attack somebody who is a great, courageous truth teller, um, was actually censored by censured by Congress. At the same time, we had Joe Biden going on TV saying that he was sure Israel hadn't bombed a hospital because Israel would never do that without seeing any evidence. This was right after October seventh that all of this was happening. And again, I, you know, any of us who who aren't blinded by propaganda were like, "What? You're the president of this country." is announcing his conclusion about the bombing of a hospital without seeing any evidence, simply on the basis that Israel can't possibly do anything wrong. Um, and at the same time, Rashida Tlaib, the, the most sensible person in Congress at that time was actually censured just for existing, just for, for being Palestinian, as far as I can tell. Yeah, no, no, and she stood up and she stood up on the floor defending herself and and cried she said you know we're people we're people you're you're talking about it so i'm standing right here it was it was just heartbreaking you know i mean when i think about that now you're bring just bring it back to me the agony i felt because you know many of us because we were so disgusted by 4 years of trump's fascism Many of us wanted to believe that Joe Biden was going to offer something better. And for me, the final nail in that coffin was was the week in which he announced that, you know, he he accepts Israel's excuses on bombing hospitals without investigation and that Congress censured. And, you know, to me, ever since then, I'm like, no, I'm I'm not going to be voting for anyone who who is this this no. so Amanda. Um, yeah, you, you know, um, the, the doctor who was on democracy now, when he, he refused to talk, meet with Blinken, he had written to Blinken about his family, the hundred members killed in Gaza and, and, um, and Blinken then wanted to meet with him and he refused to meet with him. And 
you know, his wife said, and I think he said this on Democracy Now! as well, he said, how can you meet with the person who's responsible for killing your whole family? Um, how can you look him in the eye and have a conversation? And um, I was also, when I was in DC, you know, there's an encampment outside Blinken's house, which is- Yes, I saw that video. Pretty which amazing. Benjamin posted. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell us about that moment. I saw it on video, but our listeners don't know what we're... Well, there, there's, um, you know, Blinken, who's the Blinken, sec Secretary of State, for anyone who doesn't know. And, yeah. and has been back and forth to the Middle East, I don't know how many times now, and always comes back with the same kind of pro-Israel, trying to couch it a little differently each time. But um, um Nobody will call for a ceasefire or condemn Israel. Anyway, so this group led by this amazing woman named Hazami, she has a little, you know, one and a half year old child. And, but she's done all of these sort of tableaus in front of the White House with the dead babies, dolls and um, things. Anyway, so she set up this encampment. She got people and there are Palestinians, there, there's, there are people who have just left the military. I met in DC two women who have left the military. Um, one, because of something else that happened in Hawaii, if you remember Red Hill, that big spill, mm -hmm. yes. has now become an activist. And then the other one just left because she couldn't bear what we were doing in, 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 in Gaza. So um, she was there. At the encampment. But anyway, there's these tents. It's right along the side of a road. These tents where people are staying. One of them is a is a kitchen tent. I was at Occupy on Freedom Plaza, and it, it's like that, only you know, in miniature, because it's just along the side of the road. And you mm -hmm. know, they had cars that were coming up that road, pulling really close to their tents. Well, the the <laughs> the police or whoever put up those you know those cement barrier kind of things that you'll see when there's construction right and you know they said oh we're so lucky they protected us <laughs> which wasn't their intention i don't think but right. <laughs> but anyway um so yeah when blinken arrives they always know you know he he had just been in in the middle east and everybody knew everybody in the country knew he was flying back right. and so they had it kind of timed when he was likely to to arrive and um, so everybody lines up across from the house and, um, and is ready. They, they had um, megaphones and sound systems and all kinds of things, but those were outlawed. So they had to get rid of them. But, but um, they make plenty of noise and they get up making noise throughout the night. Um, and people say, well, they've got children. How can you do that? Well, how can you inconvenience the family like that? Well, are we not inconveniencing 2 million families in Gaza? Anyway, so so the motorcade arrived. They, it, they've put a gate up and there's a one of those um, SUV, long SUV things that the Secret Service drives. And so that one is in front of the gate. So you always know when somebody's coming because they have to back up to let people in the gate. Mm -hmm. So so his wife came before him and then he was coming in. I actually wasn't there at the moment he arrived. I, did, I put up that video, but I wasn't actually there. We had, Medea had a webinar she had to do. So we had to leave before that. 
but um, Medea, who is code pink for those. Right, Medea Benjamin, who's been on this podcast, of course. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so anyway, the, the car pulls back and they're ready. They're all standing, you know, in a long line, um, shouting bloody Blinken. Well, they said, we're just going to use the, all we're going to say is bloody Blinken in our chant. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who are designated to pour the blood, which mm -hmm. is a, a substance that washes off easily and so on. But they're in big trouble um, if they get a tiny drop on a car or a cop or anything like that. So, so they've wow. learned to be very discerning in the way that they pour the blood. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, there's no way he can escape the fact that there are a lot of people against this. Um, I'm interested in your use of the word escape, you know, like, because when Blinken joined, um, when, when, you know, the transition from the Trump so-called presidency to the Biden presidency happened, um, many of us had hope for a person we didn't know named Anthony Blinken. In fact, I remember even hearing some anti-war activists say, well, we know, you know, Biden's going to pick for secretary of state, our chief diplomat, our top diplomat. We know he's going to pick somebody militaristic, but Blinken is one of the better choices is what we heard at the time. Um, then I remember when Henry Kissinger died, I saw his message about how great Henry Kissinger was. And now I I see that um, Biden's secretary of state is the new Kissinger. You know, it's it's, it's shuttling back and forth, um, you know, keeping the keeping the war machine going while pretending to be working for peace. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, bloody Blinken, indeed. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because you're in Vermont. I don't know much about Bernie Sanders. I've heard him speak here in New York, but I bet you've had a lot more experience with Bernie Sanders. Do you have any insights into what he's somewhat controversial right now? Because I think he's a little friendly with um, the the war, the weapons manufacturers in Vermont, as I understand. The F-35s are manufactured here and he brought them in. There's huge protest here against that and has been from the beginning. Um, and, you know, Bernie is in Vermont. He's a pretty controversial figure. I mean, he's got enough popular support that he, he will always be reelected as long as he runs. Mm -hmm. But um, but lots of people who have known him since he was mayor, I wasn't here then, but, um, you know, have plenty to say about Bernie and his shortcomings. I, some years ago when he was still uh, in the house, he was doing a town hall and I went with some friends. I was taking videos then. And um, and he had a town hall and he was talking about the aid to Israel and, you know, rah, rah, championing it. So, so I had my camera and I had a friend of mine who was black and knowing Vermont has not a lot of people of color. So knowing that if she asked a question, she'd get called on. So um, she did, and you know, her question was, don't you think that however many billion it was at the time could be better used, didn't she, you know? And, you know, he went off defending the money hmm. to Israel, but, but you could see it gave him pause, you know, it, because he's, 
And, you know, he since changed his stance on that. And one of the things I, I like about Bernie is when that Black Lives Matter woman got up to the podium, he let her have the podium, you know, and, um, you know, he is capable of changing his mind, right. changing his views. Um, I mean, I think his his amendment to this bill is weak. Um, and I, I had a long talk with um, Peter Welsh's foreign Peter Welsh is the other senator from Vermont and uh, with his foreign uh, relations guy, staffer, and um, who used to work with Patrick Leahy and I knew him <laughs> when uh, Operation Protective Edge was happening and I talked to him when he was with Leahy. But anyway, and he told me that um, First of all, he said something interesting. He said Welsh was going to vote in the procedural vote um, for sending the aid to Israel because he believed in debate. He wanted the debate to come to the floor. But when mm. the actual vote came, so we'll see. I mean, I'm going to, everybody watch That's and see if Peter Welsh actually votes no on this bill. But the other thing he told me was he said, Bernie is so... Um, reclusive. I, I don't know that that's the word he used, but he doesn't play well with others. Mm -hmm. um, he's so independent. He doesn't get people to sign on with him to a bill. So he's got 11 people who have signed on to this amendment. And, you know, well, said if he'd work with other people, he could have a lot more and it would go a lot further in us approaching Biden and saying, we've got to stop this. Um, and, and so it was, he said, it puts us at a real disadvantage because, you know, the people stand up and say, Bernie, yay, yay. And yet in Congress, he's not gaining support with other, other senators. Um, and so he becomes kind of a non-event. Non-entity. Non yeah. In terms yeah. of legislation. Well, I, I would I would personally find that to be a very minor offense because I don't want our Congress to pass any bills. I want our Congress to dissolve. Personally. <laughs> but, right. um, but I totally hear what you say. I, and, you know, this question of how how to deal with the constant disappointments from from the mo the only progressive, you know, the few progressive se senators and congressmen. I'm. I am. I find it much easier to applaud for Bernie Sanders or in Alexandria Ocasio Cortez than others. The way I see it is, we all have our roles in life. You know, I'm. I'm a web developer and a technologist. They are politicians. Um, my job is to build websites. Their job is to deal with difficult issues. And the fact that they, they, you know, they do their job. When when Alexandria Ocasio Cortez disappoints people on one side or another. She's doing the job. She was, she, you know, that's the way I see it. And in other words, politics is the art of compromise is what I see. So that's, right. I find it easier to forgive. I know many, many of my friends and many of our allies at World Beyond War and Code Pink probably wouldn't have a, a nice word to say to any, anybody in Congress or Senate. Um, yeah, well, you know, uh, there's a video up with Code Pink about us chasing. What what we do when they're going for a vote is go down to the tunnels. There are tunnels that lead to the Capitol oh, where they're going to make their votes. Or have you to, run after them and capture them. Right? right, because you know they all have to go through these tunnels. And, um, and it's, you know, it's so fascinating how they almost 
without exception, they won't stop and have a conversation, no matter how measured you are in your speech. Um, and, you know, Code Pink put up a video of just some of them, um, you know, running from us. It's pretty, it's pretty and telling. Anybody out there should follow Code Pink and follow Medea Benjamin on social media. Um, I did, I did see these videos, Crystal, and I thought of you because I knew you were down there. Um, yeah. You told me later you were taking some of the videos I saw. Yeah. You were the same person. That's awesome. I'm curious if Steve Cohen, who was your friend, you know, does he r run away when he sees you coming? <laughs> no. When I, when I, you know, he'll start to run away and I say, it's Crystal Zevon. And he <laughs> stops and turns around. We were, last time I was down in DC, which was not too long ago, um, there was some committee hearing on, you know, and he's up there in this committee hearing saying, we know where they are in Qatar. Let's just go to that cafe and take them out and take them yeah. out. He was, anyway, so he left the hearing and I ran after him and, you know, and he was, he's got, he's got a cane, so he can't really run, but, <laughs> but he was trying. And I, you know, I said who I was and he stopped. And, you know, the first thing I said is, you know, we're on, we're on totally opposite sides of this issue. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, you know, and then he wants to see pictures of my grandchildren. You know, I mean, it's um, his office has, you know, gold record of Warrens. He's got all kinds of Warrens, Yvonne memorabilia and other rock stars, but especially Warren. Yeah, um, I'm glad you a little bracelet someone made him saying, what would Warren Zevon do? You know, the W, what would Jesus do? That's <laughs> well, I'd like to know what would Crystal Zevon do? <laughs> Right like, now? Yeah. I mean, no, I'm saying, I mean, like, I think you you seem to have a clearer set of priorities. I wish he would listen to you. I, I do think it's great that you're not letting him sort of get away with, you know, claiming his Warren Zevon friendship um, yeah. uh, to make him cool while running away from you, who has yeah. a conscience. So, yeah, no, he, he always will invite me into his office. So he came wow. out of, uh, you know, he was the first one to call for an impeachment of Trump. And he was in that hearing in the judiciary. And he came out of that hearing because I was there to talk to me. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's so I definitely have um, entree there, but it makes no difference. He's not going to change because of me. Right. Um, and in Warren's case, he probably would have won Warren to his side, as far as I know. Um, so um, that would have been interesting with you on the other end of that. I wonder how that would have come out. Now, I want to say, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, um, Warren Warren's was an extremely intelligent and knowledgeable person. Um, one of his songs, a, a great satirical song, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. I think I have this right. He mentions Biafra. Palestine, you know, nobody else in the 1970s was putting Biafra and Palestine into song lyrics, yeah. song, a lot of records. Yeah. Um, well, the end of that song is Patty Hearst yes. heard first and bought it <laughs> <laughs> because she was, you remember, she was uh, kidnapped by the SLA, yeah, the SLA, the Muniz yeah. Liberation Army, yeah. Um, that was my favorite song of his back in the 70s. Spot beside him, Van Owen and the rest. But of all the Thompson Gunners, Roland was the best.
best So the CIA decided They wanted her old and dead And that son of a bitch Van Owen Blew off her Roland's head Roland Behez Thompson Flash of Roland's Thompson gun. In the muzzle flash of Roland's Thompson gun. Since reading your book, which was not that long ago, you know, it's sort of like learning about your involvement with Code Pink said, oh, maybe I should pick up this book because I love rock memoirs. I'm, I mean, I've, I've read many, many rock memoirs. And if I may bring up the, the question of forgiveness, I'm thinking about how you, you know, you wrote about his alcoholism. Um, he was a very eccentric, you know, genius, right? And at some points there were there were moments when you suffered. Um, there were so many moments when you were very happy, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, a, it's an admiring book overall. But um, how does your peace activism and your world consciousness jibe with having been in a marriage to a very difficult person who, you know, and you laid this all out in the book. So, but I'm sort of asking for, you know, you, you were able to be very understanding. Is that, does that come from the same thing that makes you a peace activist? Maybe, I don't know. I, that's a hard question. Um, I, you know, as I was writing the book, I, and it's an oral history, really. I can't say, I did write a tremendous amount that I decided to edit out and just make it an oral history. But, you know, I asked myself, what is this about? And the, the, thing I came up with is is the question is a question does genius excuse excess um and you know Warren was an alcoholic I also have got 34 years sober um which happened after he got sober he was kind of my um he we were split up by then and, that was it part of the book when you would parallel your story a little bit with his story yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah i was seeing him sober seeing him on stage sober i used to have to stand right off behind the piano behind the curtain mm -hmm. off stage and and tell him his lyrics because he would be so drunk he couldn't remember yeah, lyrics okay. um and but i but i learn something about alcoholism and so i guess i i forgave I, I didn't excuse his behaviors um and you know we i left a few times um but you know we were definitely in love we were in love when we split up but mm -hmm. but it couldn't um i couldn't do it anymore i had a child then right. and and it was you know it was too much he did get sober. He was sober for, I think, 14 years before he died. That's a part of the story. I mean, how, yeah. 
it was so inspiring to see how he and yeah. then he then he got cancer suddenly and yeah yeah, yeah. and he did drink before he died which was um you know i had the last time i saw him he said i'm sorry you know he said i'm sorry i i drank i don't um you know and he who's at a point where he couldn't drink anymore you know but um but you know i know he he wishes he hadn't so anyway that's so so you know does it does it have to do with my activism probably probably because you you know you're empathetic with um people who who are struggling people who are in some kind of struggles and certainly alcoholism is a struggle yeah and and much of this is you know is is played out in this book and even though you say it's an oral history and you just put it together there's a lot of artistry there you know for instance i i i enjoyed the the chapter titles like one of my favorite songs is piano fighter and i think that was mm -hmm. your chapter one um maybe i'll put a little excerpt of that in this but you know i i see in that lyric that you know basically as i understand it you know he's using a piano to to be a fighter is yeah. i'm not understand that yeah. correct but yeah um some people think the word fight shouldn't be used by activists, but I think activists fight all the time. We fight for what's right. We don't use violence, but we sure fight. Um, yeah. Otherwise, we're just letting them stumble. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I love the phrase piano fighter, and I think I've got the book right here. I think that's chapter one. Um, so your artistry does, does come out. One of his earliest songs, um, which Linda Ronstadt did, was Hasten Down the Wind. And that's also you know, a very curious lyric. Is it about forgiveness? You know, it, basically a woman leaves him and he tells her to hasten down the wind. Right. I I'm love it that I have the opportunity to ask you what you think those, those enigmatic words mean. Um, I, I think it's about forgiveness. I think it's about confusion that happens in a relationship. Like we don't, you know, we're not on the same track anymore, um, but you know, but we have this history, we have a child. I mean, it was written about um, his son's mother, who was mm -hmm. who he was with before me. Yes. And, um, so as Bob Dylan said, most likely you'll go your way and I'll go mine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's it. Which is a whole lot better than I hate you. I'm going right. to, you know, I'm going to make our children miserable, <laughs> yeah. you know. So I do see a, a sort of pacifism in his lyrics as well. Um, yeah. In that sense. Yeah. Getting back to, you know, we're, we're sort of like on a couple of different tracks. But yeah, which which I think all our lives are. So why shouldn't we be? Um, curious, what do you think of the anti-war movement today? And what do you think of organizations like World Beyond War and what we're doing? And Code Pink as well, of course, which you're more closely involved with right. well, I think world beyond war is is wonderful i know david and leah and um since occupy yes unfortunately um, by the way leah when she went to ecuador she's she's no longer actively with us but she's still a great friend love leah um yeah. she started um, our no basis project which after she left became pretty big yeah yeah uh, go well, on. yeah I, I mean i think you know as far as the anti-war movement in general Overall, um, I think it's 
you know, I don't know how we let go of it, but it's, it needs, it needs a lot more support. I mean, somehow we need, and this may do it. I mean, we're getting the young people out for Gaza and hopefully, and somewhere out for the Ukraine. Not many. Not I many. Felt, I felt pretty lonely. Yeah, I did too. In, uh, February and March, 2022, when the entire world suddenly thought it was a good idea to start World War III in Europe. But I think uh, World Beyond War and Code Pink to some degree, and uh, there are some others, are you know reaching out across the globe. And I think that's critical to, um, you know, to have yeah. a multicultural, multi-global, um, uh, <laughs> what did I say, many countries um, joining, joining forces, I, I, you know, because we've, I think we've, those of us here have worked and worked and worked to try and um, rebuild the anti-war movement, which was, you know, we thought when Iraq happened, it was huge. It was enormous. Um, and I don't think it's been like that since until until now, until Gaza, when we've had some, you know, huge marches. Um, I mean, I, you know, and I'm heartened by the Gaza thing because, like I said, these two military people who have left the military, and there are probably more, um, the... the um, the Muslims and, and Jews coming together in this, in this particular struggle. Will they stay uh, when and if it's ever over? Um, I don't know, but I, I, you know, it's something that's a topic of conversation a lot with, with anti-war activists who've been anti-war activists since Vietnam, you know, since, um, and I, I uh, you know, it's, I mean, I granted there are other important things there. You know, I, I was living in Tucson and um, Extinction Rebellion started. And it was started by two two guys who had never been activists before. And, mm -hmm. But it immediately got a lot of buy-in. You know, their, their meetings got, got really big. And um, I was also part of the Tucson Anti-War uh, Coalition. And... I can't remember exactly what was happening, but but we were having an anti-war protest, and and the Extinction Rebellion. They all worked out of the same the Alliance for Global Justice building, this one big building that's like a warehouse, and all the groups work out of it. <clears throat> and they were making signs, the the in Extinction Rebellion people. And I said, make a sign that says the Pentagon is the biggest polluter of all, and come to this anti-war demonstration. And, you know, one person showed up uh, mm. without a sign. And, okay. you know, so it's, I think there's this struggle to get people to realize that these are, these are the same cause, you know. Yes. Um, sending bombs to Israel pollutes the air, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. destroys the earth. Um, it's, you know, this... Hurt, hurts the aquifer. You know, I mean, all, all of those things are are tied together. And um, and I think it's happening more. Um, but I was just in Montpelier, Vermont, at a, a 350.org march that was a call out to everyone, all groups to come together. Now, 350.org, I think, um, 
yeah. Um, anyway, but it was it was all the 350.org people. There were a few signs for uh, something else. I had been there because it was, there was JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace, had a Holocaust memorial in front of the state house that was so incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really, really moving and very clear on their stand and, um, about for Palestine and Gaza. And, um, and it was beautiful, you know, and they, they, we did, they had um, Jewish songs, traditional, they had a band and we did dances and, you know, all this thing in the snow, they built this thing. But um, so, you know, again, it's the, but, but again, they didn't stay to go to the other March, which was the same day. Um, a couple did. Uh, and they kept a, a little stand for, you know, but, but how we come together, I don't know. Yeah. You've, you've said a lot there. Um, I first want to respond by saying I also am so, I'm so glad that the Jewish community, the progressive Jewish community have made, made ourselves unignorable that we are, we absolutely do not stand behind Israel. Um, we do not stand behind Netanyahu, the fascist, you know, the, the role model for Trump. I believe Netanyahu and Putin were role models for Trump. Um, and nobody can hear Biden and Blinken claiming that they are doing this on behalf of Jewish Americans when Jewish Americans, including me, are, you know, speaking so loudly and including Medea Benjamin and and many others we know are speaking so Clearly, I think that the distinction that people are are starting to make, I mean, it's been said for a long time, but the difference between Zionism and Judaism, I mean, in this country is trying to put them together and and they're two different things. I mean, you know, I've read a number of histories talking about how before Zionism, this this wasn't the case, this hatred, this, um, you know, uh, competition for country and land and and um you know i've talked to a number of people in dc palestinians who have talked about how their their parents or grandparents talk about how they were working you know alongside in their jobs alongside jewish people who were living in palestine at that time you know and how they would go to each other's religious celebrations they would play cards after work they would you know it was they were two people of different faiths yeah and as i've mentioned before on this podcast of course you know jews and and muslims lived together in peace for about a millennia um um, and it is so tragic that the entire all of the jewish arab communities and friendships and co you know co-living arrangements were suddenly ended in 1948 in the aftermath of the disaster called world war ii which we're now starting a sequel to um in 1948 jews from iraq syria lebanon you know egypt iran uh, Iran's one of the only countries where Jews stayed, and they still have a large Jewish community who they are very much at peace with. Um, but it, it ended. It, 
you know, it, it wasn't a genocide, but it was the dis immediate destruction of civilizations, which was the Jewish civilization in these Arab countries. Um, and that, that's a tragedy that nobody speaks of. It's, it, I, I can't think of a single book about this or movie about this. Do people even know that, that there were thousand year old Jewish communities that lived at peace with their Arab friends in Iraq and Jordan and Egypt yeah. that were suddenly, you know, wiped out when the Jews went to Israel supposedly for a better life and have been at war ever since which yeah. is not a good life. Yeah. I mean, Zionism to me is a form of nationalism. I try to be very general. I'm against nationalism. Zionism is the Jewish variant of nationalism. Um, I am against nationalism, <laughs> period, which yeah. means I'm Zionism. I, I don't single it out as worse than any other kind of, and to me, the most destructive kind of nationalism right now is American exceptionalism. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you also mentioned the climate, the need for more convergence between the anti-war movement and the climate movement. By the way, Extinction Rebellion, which you, as you mentioned, great organization. I've gone to some of their meetings. If World Beyond War didn't demand all of my time, I'd be working with Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that's quite happening, the, the convergence of these two movements. It is a big priority for us at World Beyond War to just help people understand the, the absolute truth that the Pentagon is the biggest polluter in the world and that war is a climate, you know, I'm not sure what word to use. I'm, I'm blanking on words, but is destroying our climate yeah. along, along with other capitalistic crimes right yeah. we've said a lot here krista <laughs> we have we have we have a little bit all over the place but yeah. that's i'm that's curious how, how your kids um who who are you know appear in the book um how how are they involved in activist causes yeah my daughter is um you know, she's she's come to many things with me. She came down to Occupy. Um, right. We went together to Chicago for the NATO, um, anti-NATO uh, protests in, I think it was 2012, 2013. Um, you know, she, we just, she, she and my grandson came down to um, DC for the December 13th protest. Oh, so she joins you in protests. Oh yeah. Um, she is, she's an off-grid farmer and she has over the last couple of years become a guardian ad litem. So her activism is more localized. She's working with foster kids in poverty and so on oh. um, directly. So she's not as at as many protests as I am. Um, so, you know, we were saying the other day, you know, I, I kind of work globally. She works locally. So, so it's... Um, yeah, and, and, you know, my grandsons, I have twin grandsons who are 20, and um, one of them is in film conservatory at SUNY Purchase, nice. and he's the one that will come to protests. He's come to several with me, and, um, you know, he's headlong into his studies, but there's, there's a young Palestinian in his film, in his class, who, who has made some films and also really 
it's it's helped to raise his awareness by having a, a classmate who is making films about this stuff. Um, so so he's he's pretty aware. The other one is um, Gus, who's you know. I love him so much. He's, but he's, Gus is severely dyslexic, had a hard time in school, a little socially inept sometimes. And so, he, but what he found was woodworking when he was young. So he went to, he got his associate degree in building construction and he's, um, you know, and in that field, there's a lot of right wingers, you know, a lot of Trumpsters and so on. And right. so he had to kind of navigate that and, um, you know, he knows where we stand. He knows that, but he's not, he's not buying in a hundred percent. He's, he's, uh, but he, you know, he lived with me for, um, I don't know, about eight months after he graduated. And, you know, he was great. He set up my a workshop in my garage. He built all kinds of things that I can see around me. Um, he built me a, the most gorgeous chicken coop you ever saw. Mm. Um, and he, you know, he worked for a contractor for a while, and now he's he's off in search of uh, his own life elsewhere. He wants to go to Montana and be a cowboy or something. So, so, so it's it's. Uh, well, it sounds like he's on a journey. He's yeah. on a journey. He's on a journey. I'm um, I'm really I'm happy to hear that that your daughter Ariel, who you know again read about in the book, is is joined to a protest and it and does organic farming. Organic farming, of course, is. A, a sort of thing that's very much allied with our values at World Beyond War um, and our our director of organizing, Greta Zaro, whose voice you hear at the very end of each podcast is very big in the world of organic farming along with anti-war activism. So um, that is great. Um, I think I think I ought to let you get back to your to your normal life, Crystal. But you've you've really brightened, you know. I think many of our days with with your fresh insights and you know original voice and <laughs> so. You know, thank you for having me, Mark. It, you know, it, it is good to, to talk. You know, to get get stuff out. It's not, um, yeah, and and not be having to try and persuade someone of something to uh yes. just a conversation absolutely and you know when when i hear you describe your your the, the variety of lifestyles and opinions from your kids i also have kids that's just the, the joy of life is seeing each person find their way to yeah. choose and, you know yeah. yeah get there or you know and what will they do on the way but we, i think we yeah. all get eventually yes <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Crystal. This has been really great, really great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. She tells him she thinks she wants to be free. He tells her he doesn't understand. She takes his hand and tells him nothing's working out. Yeah.
I'll go to Reno. Nobody knows my name. I'll play Claire de Lune in a quiet saloon. Steady work for a change. I won't have to burn on lonesome much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.